Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today we're talking about I would say the same old, same old, but it's really not the same old, same old. We are continuing on our series through Nelson Nash's Becoming Your Own Banker. And I'm actually going to start this show in a totally different way than usual, because I think we normally come at the conversation expecting that maybe you already have heard about infinite banking. You're already thinking that infinite banking is something you want to do. And just for a minute, I almost want to step into the shoes of somebody who's saying, look, I'm not really sure that life insurance is a good idea because the number one question that really hits a nerve for people when you mention the idea of whole life insurance is, but could I get a higher rate of return? And this question is so prominent. It's so pressing that Nelson Nash addresses it in this book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And I think it's something that we want to talk about head on today because that is the typical, or that is the question on many people's minds. And if you're coming to this podcast today, maybe you just saw the title, Can I Get a Higher Rate of Return? We're going to talk about what is a rate of return? How can you think about rate of return with your financial life? And really how to think about rate of return in a way that is more expansive than maybe you've ever considered before, and that will actually put you ahead financially rather than just stay in the average game of mediocrity that you are expecting when you're asking that rate of return question. And so, um, Bruce, I know that this is a little bit of a maybe different way of me talking than you've heard than you've heard as we've been going through this series before. But I think this question really deserves a full, honest look from somebody who's actually asking the question, look, I thought whole life insurance didn't get a good rate of return how do I get a good rate of return? How do I think about rate of return? And so that's really going to be the context of this conversation today. I wanted to say thank you, Bruce, for joining me. Bruce and I have been going through this book now. I think we're on, well, we're on episode 22. Um, and this is definitely a conversation that we've been having much longer on the podcast and more um, extensively even in our own lives and our own practice with serving clients and using infinite banking personally. But today we're asking the question, can I get a higher rate of return? So if you have this question, if you're looking for a higher rate of return, just put yes in the comments as you're listening to this show today and listen in because we have some really amazing content that's going to change your life. So Bruce, what are your thoughts as we get started on this conversation today? My thoughts are that uh, one of the reasons that people ask this question is because they don't know what else to ask. <laughs> um, it's very simple when uh, the investment world says, hey, look over here. Look what we've averaged in a rate of return. Oh, look over here. Look, look, this is what we're projecting as a rate of return. It's something that's very, very concrete in their minds, although it's not concrete if you really dis dissect it. Mm -hmm. And that's why Nelson used to say, uh, interest rates don't matter which is another way to look at the rate of return. And why is that? Because let's just, let's just take an, uh, this example. 
you could say, for example, let's not even talk about life insurance. So let's just talk about a tax-free rate of return, such as a Roth IRA and a traditional uh, IRA. If you got the same rates of return in both of them for whatever they were invested in, then the taxable equivalent would be not as good because the Roth, you do not have to pay any taxes on the gain. Mm -hmm. So you could say, oh, I got a 7% in my traditional. Oh, I got a 7% in my Roth. But then when you net out taxes, then you would say that, well, that rate of return didn't make any difference because I don't have to pay taxes on the Roth part. So that's a that's one example why rates of return you can't just you can't just pay attention to that the tax situation. The other one is is the rate of return uh, a volatile rate of return. So you could say, look, I got twenty twenty percent rate of return this year, and next year you get minus twenty rate of return. So what's the time period of the rate of return, and then also. What is the rate of return doing for you? Are you just building up a a pile of cash and it's not flowing anywhere and doing anything for you? And you're and you're proud of your rate of return. Look, I've gotten you know eight percent for the last five years. But what is that money doing for you as far as um, the future? Is it flowing? Is it going to do anything as far as building your net worth or eliminating finance costs in the future. And you haven't even considered if it's a whole life policy or any kind of insurance policy, the rate of return on the death benefit. Mm -hmm. That's a rate of return. Uh, Nelson, So Nelson addresses this fact. I frankly find this to be, for most of the people I talk to, a very confusing tech chapter. Nelson actually addresses everything that's confusing but people overlook it. Look at, and one of it is about paying interest to you to yourself. And he does at the end talk about you're not truly paying interest to yourself. You're actually paying yourself more premiums when you're using an infinite banking. When policy. you're when you're using a a whole life designed for infinite banking, mm-hmm. um, those additional interest payments that you're making to yourself are simply more PUA payments. He actually mentions that in the book, but people misconstrue it and say, oh, the interest is going back to me. And that's and that's not true because some of the interest is actually going to the insurance company. But Nelson says that's okay because you're a part owner in the insurance company. And that makes the return to the owners of the company even greater. Mm-hmm. So why would you worry about if it's if the interest is five or five point seven percent? Because the higher the interest that the insurance company charges you, that's more return to the insurance company, and then they're going to share it with all the policyholders. So that's so, just one aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's really important because really we need to understand what's happening. So I'm gonna just lay out this chapter in the way that I see the framework of this chapter. I think 
frameworks or models are really important to help us to understand information that's being presented. I mean, you could think of this as if you're reading your Bible. Um, maybe you're not a Christian and you're listening to me say that and you're saying, well, Rachel, why are you talking about that? Let me just share what I mean is that you can read all of the details and not be able to step back and look at the big picture and understand the big story. And so what I want to do is help us to look at this chapter in a way of not just looking at the details he lays out, but what is he talking about? What's the bigger story? And so really what I see, the flow of this chapter, he starts with this idea that rate of return really doesn't matter. That's the point he makes. I'm going to build up to that in a second. But then if you look, so we're starting on page 69, and then the second column of that page 69 chapter, he really says, here are the proofs, and I see it as four different proofs that prove why rate of return doesn't matter. That's really how I see this chapter laid out. But in order for you to understand what I even mean by that, I want to start from that rate of return question for a second, because here's where I see rate of return happening. Often in our financial life, we have our income, we spend some money, we save some money, we give some money, and we think about another component or compartment, and I hope that that word is going to ring a bell for you in a minute. We compartmentalize our money and we say, well, this chunk of our money is going to investment. When I'm investing that money, I have some goals. I want that money to grow and I want to be able to have a higher net worth from that invested money and I want to be able to use that for income in the future. But ultimately, the question comes down to rate of return inside of that component, that compartment of investing. We don't think about rate of return on the rest of our money. We're just thinking about the rate of return on that little skinny slice of money that we put aside for whatever we mean by saying, I'm saving, I'm investing for the future. This is money I'm not spending, I'm not saving, I'm not giving, I'm putting aside for the future, whatever we mean by that. This could be in your your employer 401k plan, this could be your IRA, the Roth IRA that Bruce mentioned, you mentioned just a second ago in the show. This could be putting aside in a college savings plan. This could be you are putting money in a stock brokerage account, you're trading, you're day trading, you're um, doing puts and calls, and you, you have your own strategy where you're looking at investment performance. You could be stock picking, you could be putting in into funds, but whatever you're doing with that investment dollars, you're looking for usually, what's the best rate of return I can get? Because that seems to be the lens that we should make decisions. Well, if I can get a higher rate of return in one investment, then why would I put my money in a different investment within that investment compartment over here? Why would I use a different investment that has a lower rate of return if I can get a higher rate of return? And so the problem with that question is it's not looking at the big picture. We're not looking at your entire financial life. You're looking at the one skinny slice of money that you've called you're investing. And when we do that, we are blind to the rest of the story and we don't see how the rest of the story is impacting what's really happening in our financial life. And so Nelson doesn't negate that question and he doesn't say it's a invalid question, but he says it's the wrong question because it's the wrong lens to just be thinking about your investments over here, this little skinny slice that's disconnected from the rest of your personal economy. And that's why rate of return doesn't matter. 
So Bruce, that's how I see him coming into the conversation because the typical paradigm is everything I just laid out. My investing money is over here. It's this side slot of my money where I need to get this higher rate of return. And that is the whole conversation about rate of return. And yet it's the flashiest thing. I mean, if you go online and you type in rate of return, you're going to get a hundred different answers for where you should put your money because everyone is looking for a higher rate of return. I almost feel like there should be some kind of analogy to the rest of life, uh, but I can't think of how <laughs> how to make an analogy. But I feel like it's like you're looking at the dictionary and you're trying to find words that end in E-A-R or something and you're not even like aware that there's a whole dictionary. You're just looking on one page. That's the best analogy I can come up with in the moment. Yeah, it's um, looking at your personal economy or your business economy in one silo um, doesn't maximize what you're trying to accomplish. You may be trying to comp- uh, accomplish not even a greater, a higher rate of return. And I know that sounds ridiculous to some of our listeners right now because a higher rate of return could actually bring in more volatility or risk. Yes. Higher rate of return can can actually um, uh, bring in more illiquidity. So you don't have control of your asset. And I think what happens here is also, if you, if our listeners would go back and listen to Dr. Wade Fowl, he would also say that the cash value is also a way to, to use as a volatility buffer for some of your a- other assets so that you can actually get a, a better average on those other assets because you're not taking uh, money off of those assets when they're down mm-hmm. and that increases cash flow. And then Dr. Wade would also say, and <laughs> you can afford to take greater risk in your other assets because you have this volatility buffer and because you can fill the bucket back up when one of, if it's a, if it's a husband and wife or any partnership, you could say, well, we're going to live a better life by using up all these assets and live a better life, knowing that when one of us passes away, the bucket's going to get filled back up with the death benefit, which has a much greater rate of return. So you can get a greater return in a, in a, in a more aggressive equity portfolio. So it's a, only worrying about a rate of return in what you called individual or silo is really a short-sighted way of looking at things. Oh, it's tremendously. And it's narrow-minded in a way. I mean, not that you're trying to be narrow-minded or you're trying to be closed off to other ideas, but the problem is you're only looking at this much of your personal economy when you really need to be looking at the whole thing. And really that's what Nelson says. He says, look at your entire financial economy. Look at how money is flowing through every area of your financial life. And he has a very specific way of saying how to do this because it sounds like I'm saying, well, Rachel, uh, you know, it sounds like I'm saying just, you know, yeah, just evaluate every single spending decision you're making. I mean, I'm not saying to just um, be more concerned about the money that you're spending. That's not what I'm saying. Like this global angst about your money. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you need to understand all of your financial economy in terms of how you're paying for things because Nelson brings it all down to this equation or this this component that he calls financing. 
And when you look at how you're spending your money for everything that you pay for, whether it's your house, your cars, your um, clothing, your groceries, because maybe you're putting it on your credit card, you're, he's looking at your entire financial picture and the entire personal economy and saying, it's all connected. It's all this interwoven system where money is flowing in and it trickles throughout these different parts of your economy. You have some money going over into expenses that are paying for things that you're using in your lifestyle. And you have some money going into insurance type of products that are protecting the rest of your money. And you have some money going into savings and you have some money going into investing. And ultimately, you want all of that to be functioning well, not just the piece that you're setting aside over here and calling it an investment and hoping that one piece works out. And honestly, Bruce, I think what the challenge or the hesitation or the fear that you run up against when I start saying something like this is that sounds really complicated because it sounds simple mm -hmm. to just say, well, look, I can understand things through the lens of well, let's look at a rate of return because I can understand I'm getting 8% average or I'm getting 10% average and I can compare an 8 and a 10 and a 10 is better, so let's do the 10. That's easy. I mean, I can I don't have to use very many brain cells to make that calculation. The problem is we really need to look at the whole picture and that takes a lot more thinking, a lot more understanding, a lot more slowing down, a lot more recognizing that there's an entire ecosystem of what our money is doing that's either moving us forward or moving us back. And it's not just as simple as saying, well, what is the rate of return I'm getting on those investment dollars for the future? And so, Bruce, I think um, really this is where Nelson says, you're financing everything you buy. And he's been building this argument or this um, debate throughout, throughout the entire book so far, this idea that we finance things, we pay for everything in our life, either by paying cash or by getting a loan or having some kind of line of credit. And we're either paying interest or we're giving up the ability to earn interest. And that's the usual conversation. And he's saying, if we can look at that financing component, where's our money coming from to pay for the things that we're using? That's what he means by financing. If we can think about maybe I'm going to rephrase that a little bit. It's not just paying for the things we're using. It's paying for our investments. It's paying for the rental properties and it's paying for the um, multifamily complexes that we're purchasing. It's paying for the investments that we are doing. He doesn't say don't invest. He says, look at the conversation of your finances through more than just a rate of return on investments. Look at the whole system. And with that whole system, you need to recognize that as you're financing everything you buy, if you can minimize those financing costs, you can move the whole economy forward. You can have more efficiency. You can have more optimization. And the way that you do this is by recognizing that you have financing costs to everything that you buy. And I think that is why he always says the rate of return doesn't matter. And it can sound trite as we say that, right? It can sound like... It can sound like, well, you guys are just trying to blow us off. Or, you know, if you, if you if you came to us specifically and said, look, I have a question. What is the rate of return that I get in this life insurance policy? Because I know you're thinking that even if you don't ask it directly, we hear enough questions and we hear enough of your internal dialogue that either comes out in the comments on YouTube or it comes in email or it comes in the conversations that you're having, Bruce, with or our whole advisor team is having with our clients. And when you say, well, what's the rate of return inside a life insurance policy? The problem with that question is that you're trying to understand 
a product that solves a lot of issues through your whole financial life in terms of this narrow-sighted lens of rate of return. And it's not that simple. It's not just as simple as saying, well, here's the dividend rate of this life insurance policy, and therefore you can look at the dividend rate, compare it to an investment rate of return, boom, now we can figure out which one's better. It doesn't, you can't look at it that quickly and that concisely because it's not just about the dividend rate. It's not just about the interest rate inside of a life insurance policy. And we could unpack a lot of things there. And depending on what your questions are as you're listening to the show, Bruce, you asked if anyone has questions. I would really like to know specifically regarding this question. If you're listening live, what are your questions about the rate of return with a life insurance policy? Because we want to be able to address the ones that are on your mind specifically. So Bruce, can you talk just real briefly, and we don't have to direct the whole show this way, but why it's not as simple as looking at the rate of return inside of a life insurance policy and comparing that to an investment and saying, oh, well, I can figure out which one's better. Well, first of all, the um, you can't really look at the cash value as being a rate of return because it's not it's not really dependent upon taking the dividend rate and multiplying it by the the premiums that you paid in, and then all of a sudden you get a cash value, which would be easy to decipher and figure out a rate of return. There's a lot of things out on social media that people try to do that. And when I say people, I'm talking about insurance agents. Mm-hmm. That are saying, look, you got a, you get a six percent rate of return when you put this money in. Well, when you when you hear that, you would think, oh, I'm putting a hundred thousand dollars into a, a policy in the form of a premium. That would mean that I would get six six percent. I'm going to get six thousand dollars increase on my cash value. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. The di- the declared dividend rate is declared by the company and you can't even determine the way they did it because it's proprietary. So some of them have a completely net of all the fees. Some of them have some of the some of the gross in there and some of the net. Some of them are only gross. And then they have to take the cost of the insurance out of it. And they also have to take any other fees that the actuaries are working on and that those fees would be the home office fees, the personnel fees, the actuarial fees, the underwriting fees, the nurse that does the pyramid, the commissions that are paid to um, the agents to present and service it. And so when they figure all those in, and there's some ongoing ones there, then they determine what the cash value will be. And, it, and they do not uh, simply say, we're going to multiply this by a X amount of percentage. Mm -hmm. And that can be really frustrating. I understand that for people. But think about it as Mm -hmm. your own business. And Nelson comes back to this over and over and over. He says, you know, this isn't something that you're just going to try. Would you expect to just try to start a business, not a bank, but just another business and expect that you're going to get immediate cash on that business. You're not because the business is going to have early liabilities. There's going to have early liquidity that you cannot get out of the business, even if you went to a bank and got a line of credit, because you have to prove to them that you're going to have cash flow. 
There's all kinds of things early on in the business that's going to limit the value of the business and the cash flow of the business. And those are startup costs. And mm-hmm. Nelson even says here in the, in the, on page 69, he said, so there's no way that a person can get a higher rate of return by ignoring the banking process. There is a delay in the time while getting the banking system established. But once this is done, it is a one-time only event. Just like when you start up a business, it's a one-time only expense. Anytime a person starts a new business, there is a delay in the time before profitability commences. When a life insurance policy is created, this is equivalent of starting a business that never existed before. And the same phenomenon is inevitable. So when you're looking at a, you're trying to compare a rate of return, business owners know they they can't do that because what ends up happening is how are they actually using their business that particular year? Are they expanding the years that they're expanding their business? Just like if you're expanding your amount of policies you have, that that supposed rate of return is going to be different that year mm-hmm. than if you did not expand. Other people would say, but there's a potential if you expand your business that year to a second location or, or more services, the rate of return is actually going to take off that particular year and increase. And so you cannot look at it as a rate of return. You can look at it as increasing cash flow, increasing security, increasing um, capital that you could use for another opportunity. So there's a variety of things, not to mention reducing the taxes you pay, um, leaving a legacy as far as a death benefit, enjoying the ability to use other assets in a different, in another way. You really have to sit down and evaluate everything. Now, I find that people don't want to think. They just want somebody to tell them what to believe. And I don't think that you can reach your highest potential as an individual, unless you think. And Nelson was great at teaching people to think. He really was. If you go back and read the book or listen to listen to um, Nelson in any of his seminars, he always asked questions. And he very rarely gave you the answers. He wanted you to come to your own answer because that's what true lear- when true learning, learning comes about. You know, Bruce, it's very interesting that I think when somebody first hears that part that you just shared about why you can't just look at a rate of return based on the dividend rate in the beginning and why there's all these costs and calculations that go into it and why it's not as simple as just saying, well, here's my dividend rate, therefore that's my rate of return across every year of the policy. When somebody first hears that, I think that the challenge can be to think or to feel, well, if it's that complicated, why do I even want to bother? Why do I even, why why does it make sense if it's unexplainable or there's so many caveats or, or it seems too complicated? Why would I try to figure that out? And the real truth is, I mean, I'm working through this in other areas of my life, but if something's really challenging, that doesn't mean you say, well, let me just not even start. It means let me take steps with the information I do have and continue to build my knowledge and live in integrity and live 
as closely aligned to my value system as possible. And what, what I want to say is that whole idea of, yes, it's a little complicated to figure out the rate of return inside of a life insurance policy. However, this is why Nelson says the rate of return doesn't matter. I'm going to actually come to the exact example that he pointed out. And I also want to just um, thank you for all jumping in on, um, I think mostly on YouTube here. We've got a lot of questions, comments, and people jumping mm -hmm. in from everywhere from Africa to Canada to Charlotte. And um, yeah. Indiana. Yes, I see that one too. So Nelson demonstrates this point by saying rate of return doesn't matter. He starts with two examples. And first he says, all right, let's take the person who just invests. And what is that rate of return? And he has an investment of $100,000 in one year that earns 20%. That's a gross yield of $20,000. He says, well, now if you're in a taxable environment of 30% of your taxes, that's going to be $6,000 paid in taxes with a net yield of $14,000. Okay, pretty simple, easy to understand. Maybe you're not going to get 20% in an investment, but let's just go with the math and the numbers for a second because what he's showing is somebody saying, here's the rate of return and how it affects me if I invest these dollars. Then he shows another person, he calls it person B. And instead of saying, I'm going to put my money in life insurance period only, and comparing that rate of return, he's really looking at the entire economy if you use life insurance, because this is the most impressive and um, to me, the most compelling thing about life insurance is that it's not an or situation. It's not that I can either invest my dollars over here in that 20% investment I just mentioned, or I can put my, my money into life insurance. That's not the question at hand. The question is, what happens if I add in life insurance because it allows me to do other things as well. So the second person instead first puts money into a life insurance policy and he then borrows. So he builds up $100,000 of cash inside the life insurance policy over here. He then borrows $100,000 and uses it to purchase that same investment that the first person did. So that same $100,000 investment at 20% growth rate has to um, then pay interest back to the policy loan that he borrowed from. So now all of a sudden, we didn't just pay cash for something and have only the cost of capital being what we couldn't have earned. It's not just an opportunity cost. It's an actual interest rate that you now have to repay your policy loan. So he first builds up this $100,000. It's just the source of the capital that's different because watch, he's going to make the same exact investment. You're just evaluating where the source of the money came from. So this person B putting dollars into a life insurance policy, building up cash values. They get $100,000 of cash value. They borrow that capital. So what is actually happening, just for technical clarification, you're taking a loan against your cash value using your cash value as collateral. The loan is actually coming from the insurance company. So that $100,000, you get the loan. It's at 8% interest in this example. You pay the interest back to the insurance company. That then ultimately makes you profitable because they're profitable and they, their profitability pays out to you in the form of dividends. All that being said, this $8,000 is going back to your banking system, so your taxable gain is only $12,000. Then he applies the same taxable amount here of 30% in taxes, and that amount of taxes is $3,600. The net yield is $8,400. So at this point, you could look at the example and say, look, 
if I invested directly, my net yield was 14,000. I'm over here putting my money through a life insurance policy and now my net yield is only 8,400 because I had this gigantic financing cost that I had to pay 8% on this loan instead of just paying cash. That's what it looks like here, but that's not the end of the story. And I love how he has but in not only dark or bold letters, but also um, capitalized and also italicized. This is a really, really big caveat or clarification that Nelson wants to make here. In this case, you must remember who the characters are in the play. This second person, B, also owns the policy to which interest is paid and earns the 8000 on a non-taxed basis. So the results are that 8400 of net yield from the investment plus what he's earning inside the policy. And so Nelson has this assumed $8,000 that this person's earning inside the policy. And when you put those together, $8,400 inside the investment after your capital costs, plus $8,000 in the life insurance of gain, that's $16,400, which is actually higher than if you just invested directly. The numbers may be different in your actual situation. The point that I'm making is life insurance specifically infinite banking using specially designed whole life insurance is an and product. And when you use it, you're not giving up investment returns for the sake of putting your money in life insurance and calling that the end of the story. Instead, you are still being able to invest. You're just using life insurance and infinite banking as a financing system that you're building as a business that you're earning interest and dividends, that you're also able to borrow against and put capital to work in the same exact investments you were doing otherwise, which is why it's called an and asset. You put the money in life insurance and get the returns there. And at the same time, you're getting returns inside of your investment. And so what's happening is that this person is getting a higher rate of return by allowing themselves to look at the entire personal economy the banking function in their life and taking control of that banking function, not just looking at a rate of return for an investment. Yes. And basically it's, it's because you are the banker and that's what Nelson keeps saying is if bank, if, if a brick and mortar bank is making money because they're taking in uh, deposits and they're paying a smaller amount there, and they're also making money on loans, then you could do the same thing by set, by using a, a whole life uh, insurance contract to act like your banking function. And then if you're going to pay interest, why not pay it back into your own banking policy, additional interest, because you own it. So that extra eight thousand is like you're making additional PUA payments, which he talks about on the next page. And if you're making additional PUA payments, not only are you and Andre talks about this, uh, Biswa uh, on YouTube, you're in control. Now you're making more payments, and it's just more capital that you can control for another opportunity. Yeses are growth within the policy, and Fritz actually says. Uh, uh, if you do a basic growth rate calculation between the prior year and the current year on the policy illustration, it shows the various growth rates of the cash value between each years. Have you ever done this? Yeah, of course I've done this. But to me, it's 
it's it's a kind of irrelevant because Fritz, you know, in the first several years, the cash value uh, growth uh, doesn't even equal what you put in as a premium. It's not until you get past what you, the premium amount you've put in that you can actually start seeing these various growth rates. Mm-hmm. And now you're talking, are you talking about the growth from one year to the next? Or are you talking about the internal rate of return from the first time that you put the money in? Those are two different things. And um, if you're looking at it from year over year, heck, it, it, blows, it blows it out of the water, or rates of return out of the water. If you're looking at it from the entire time period, it's a solid rate of return, uh, internal rate of return. So once again, it's a time period. I talk about this all the time when people say, oh, I got 20% um, in my equity portfolio. Well, what was the time period? Was that you got 20% over the last six months? Did you get 20% over the last two years? Did you get 20% over the last 20 years? What is the time period? Because that is a very important thing to uh, talk about. Uh, I like the fact that Andre brings up the fact of control. Nelson talked about the advantages of the control he got from his policy when he purchased land from a person that needed capital right then. Nelson was able to take advantage and say, hey, I'll buy it from you and I'll get the money to you this afternoon if you give me this price. So not only was Nelson able to obtain the land that he later on used to grow his network, but he was also able to reduce the price of the acquisition of the land, which we talked about the cost of acquisition last week. So that can be considered a rate of return. So that's why you cannot just look at a, a what kind of rate of return are you getting on one particular silo thing? And uh, we're having some really great comments. Andre, I agree. I've sat with Nelson many, many times over my career when he was still alive. And he would always say, IBC is not taught, it's caught. And it's because in general, a lot of people are not entrepreneurs. And this is an entrepreneurial mindset. And entrepreneurs learn a lot while they're entrepreneurs, <laughs> they're learning as they grow their business. And so you can sit in on a college class. This was great. I just had this on Facebook last night. One of my Facebook friends said, can you, and he goes, serious question, can entrepreneurship be taught in a college? And his idea was he believes entrepreneurs, it's it's more of an innate ability. And the innate ability is whether you're a risk taker, whether you can handle stressful situations, whether you can look at things in the long run instead of the short run. And a lot of people cannot do that. They cannot do that. So can somebody, a professor at a university, teach you those kind of things to say, oh, Rachel, don't worry about it. We're looking at this five years from now, and you're saying, yeah, but I got to feed my family right now. And so can that actually be, can that actually be taught? Um, to your point, Nelson there. says, I think you, you need to caught. It has to be caught. You have to, you have to experience it. I think that's so, so valuable. I mean, I can not tell you the number of things that, I mean, I learn by doing, and I, I don't know if 
I mean, I also can learn auditorily. I can also learn visually. Yes, I think all of us can learn in multiple ways. But imagine someone trying to teach you how to cook, but you just had to sit in the class with your nothing in your hands, no actual ingredients, and be learning a class about how to make perfect loaf of bread. Well, okay, it's valuable kind of to watch somebody else do it, but really what's valuable is getting in there and actually feeling the dough for yourself and actually doing the measurements and making sure that you have the experience of doing it. It's the same with driving. It's the same with, I mean, parenting. It's the same with starting a life insurance policy. Just next week, we're going to be talking about Lucas and I's family banking system and what our performance has been and is currently on our policies that have been started multiple years ago and what that looks like and why we're doing what we're doing and what our growth has been. Because frankly, I could learn about this for a thousand years and not get in the driver's seat and it would never have got me excited. The excitement comes from actually getting behind the wheel and making the moves and watching the growth happen. And when you see the advantages that it produces in your life, it's really exciting. But you don't get that from just hearing about it only, you get it by doing. And that's why I think, I mean, to play devil's advocate, maybe you could learn entrepreneurship in a college classroom if and I, I would say this is a big if, I'm just answering off the fly off the top of my head here. If the professor, the teacher, actually had scale, built and scaled a business himself or herself from the ground and really had the personal experience and if you were required to actually get a business going while you were in that college classroom and so it was more of an incubator and uh, real-time problem solving and application of principles, Maybe you could learn it in a classroom. I mean, I'm not saying a classroom is bad. What I am saying is you can't learn by sitting in a seat and listening to somebody who's never done entrepreneurship and hoping that you're going to understand something by getting it from the classroom. That's that's my opinion. But um, Bruce, there's just so much more packed into this this chapter. And so I think we're basically to the section here where he starts going into the proofs. And what I mean by proofs are the proofs of why the interest rate doesn't matter. He lays out four proofs. I'm going to go over them really quickly just so that we have kind of a context for what we're looking at. And then we can dig into each one because actually, Bruce, you already brought one up at the beginning. The first proof that he makes is that the owner of the policy outranks every other place that insurance company can put its money to work. And so policy loans are good for the insurance company. That's one reason why rate of return doesn't matter because the insurance company itself is making investments by providing policy loans to policyholders. And if you, the policyholder and owner of the policy, can get access to capital from the insurance company just because you have an insurance policy with that company, then you have access to capital in a banking system that makes rate of return such a small question that it is irrelevant. That's the first proof. The second is that well, I need to uh read my notes better. I see where it is in my notes, but I'm trying to figure out. Um, oh, the second is that understanding, Bruce, you mentioned this at the very beginning, this idea of paying interest to yourself beyond the charged interest of a policy loan. The way that you do that is by putting in more capital into the policy by filling up the PUA. So, And that's fancy or complicated depending on your level of awareness and knowledge about an infinite banking policy, but you have two kinds of premium that go in. One is base premium that's required. One is paid up additions, which are basically 
small parts, small fully paid up portions of insurance that you can then build cash value with really quickly. And those payments for paid up additions are not always required every year in your policy. And what that means is that you could get a policy that's designed with some base premium and some paid up addition premium and hit a hard year and pay only your base. And so, or you could not always pay your paid up additions fully. And when you do have additional capital, you can pay extra on your loans by filling up and paying that full paid up addition if you haven't already made those premium payments. Hey, before we go any further yes. than that, I, go ahead. I want to make a really important for all you listeners, this is you really need to listen to this. Nelson's book was written and Nelson died before there was a major change in the modified endowment contract uh, in 2020. So can you still do what Nelson's talking about in the design of a policy? Yes. However, many insurance companies had now made some limits on the ability to pay PUAs because of the MEC limits whenever you want to. Um, And here's another good example why rates of return do not matter. Um, There's one company out there that professes a higher dividend rate. However, they, if you miss a PUA payment, you cannot make any more PUA payments. So therefore, then, the design of that particular product, you cannot design it where you're only putting in base and PUAs, and then the next year, only put the base in, and then skip it that year, and then the next year, you decide, well, I'm going to pay extra money, extra interest into the PUAs because your PUA would have closed. Wow. Okay, so- That's really important. To understand That's a modification. how the policy is actually designed, yes. Correct. And uh, uh, other companies say, well, to protect yourself from a mech, we are going to allow you to put um, PUAs in, but for the first seven years, you don't have to fully fund them and you can catch up, but we're only going to allow you to catch up up to $25,000 of PUAs. And then on the eighth year, you're only going to be able to put in the average of what you put in the first seven years. So there's a lot of limitations that have come in since Nelson has written a book. A lot of people say, well, wait a minute, I want to get a policy designed like this because Nelson said I should be paying extra into my extra interest. And I'm not saying Nelson was wrong. I'm just saying the climate has changed Mm -hmm. because the modified endowment laws have changed since the book. Can you still design it like that? Yes, with some companies, but there are some limitations on how much you can put into PUAs now in the form of additional payments, additional premium payments. So just keep that in mind when you're evaluating this. It's another reason why looking at illustrations only and comparing it from one company to another doesn't work because one company will allow you to catch up with PUAs and and skip them completely one year. And another company says, if you skip them, we're closing it. You can't continue. Well, how's that going to work out in your illustration in the future? Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up because he, he does say in proof of fact, the number of people have have had trouble understanding that interest B paid to the insurance company went to increase the cash value of his policy. How did it increase the cash value of the policy? 
because you made more PUA payments, premium payments. You're not paying literally interest to yourself. You're just making more PUA payments. And he makes that comment and clarifies that on the next page. And he actually clarified that earlier as well when we talked about equipment financing, which he references back to in this chapter as well. So um, I'm going to say my third proof here is where he he's talking about loans to for any source are going to increase your cash value. Now, I want to clarify something here as well. So what he's doing is he's getting ready to point back to equipment financing that he talked about back on page, um, I believe, 51 and starting on page 51. And what he lays out there is that he basically says financing through your policy will increase the cash value. And when you so he does say that, but I want to clarify what he means because this is really important and it goes exactly along with Bruce, what you just said. So when he first lays out the policy illustration without any financing at all, he has just, I think, $30,000 of premium going in for four years. So he's capitalizing a policy. I'm going to make sure I'm saying the right number here. This illustration is on page 54. And he has, yes, oh, 40000 40,000 going in for four years. That's 160,000 total capital going into a life insurance policy just the first four years and zero more capital after that. And he shows how this policy would perform. Can you design a policy exactly like that? Eh. I mean, Bruce, you would have to be the one to say yes or no, but generally that's not how you're seeing policies designed. We've specifically, so Lucas and I have policies that we specifically set up to say, how can we guarantee the ability to put as much money in as long as possible? The reason we wanted to do that is because we wanted to make sure that we didn't have to limit the performance of a policy. We wanted to continue funding a banking system for as long as possible. Now, there's all different end goals with that as well. But basically what Nelson does then is he walks through that initial policy illustration, just putting 40000 in per year for the first four years, end of financing, all the way through First, making a purchase for a truck in his company, in his um, forestry company. And he shows financing a truck at $52,000 every four years and paying back at $1,500 a month, which is $18,000 per year. And he's basically paying a bit over 15% on a loan when you extrapolate out those numbers. And what's happening is this shows more capital going into the policy than just the that 160,000 in the first four years because he's showing paying extra on a loan, paying additional interest. Now, to be clear, the interest charged on a loan is money paid to the insurance company, which is not additional premium. But if the insurance company charges 8% and you pay back 15%, that extra interest, that extra 7% is what, what Nelson is talking about going into the policy. And then he shows that in the form of paying back a loan extra and what that premium, what that does, because he's putting it in as premium and he has a policy now that he's put more capital into. And because the more capital has gone in, that's why the cash value is higher. Excuse my voice. So the idea really is that if you finance, if you're fully paying your premium all the time, that's as much cash value growth as you can have. And you will not increase that cash value by running loans through your policy. So I want to be really right. clear on that. And Nelson is not wrong. He's just showing the the way that he 
initially capitalize a policy, he showed that when you take a loan and you pay back to the policy by putting in additional premium that you were not initially putting in, that's what's increasing your cash value. And so what he's saying yeah, this is, is capitalize you don't, more. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't mind, Rachel, yes. Keith is actually asking a question that's yes. very close to what we're talking about. He says, uh, is there a proper ratio of yearly policy premiums compared to one's, one's extra net income? There needs to be extra income to pay unknown future policy loans off. <laughs> Excuse me. Obviously, my PUA is fixed as a yearly max. So... This is a very good question. I think I, I think I understand what you're asking, Keith. Um, it's probably my interpretation. Um, but I think what you're saying is when you're paying back the loan, uh, you have to understand that there has to be if, – if, well, let me use an example. Let's say you're putting $40,000 a year into a policy in the form of premium, and then you borrow against – Keith, I believe Keith is saying, I'm already using all my cash possible to do the $40,000 premium every year. But now I've taken a loan and I got to find enough excess cash to actually pay back the loan and the premium. Yeah, Keith, comment if that's your question, because that's what I'm hearing too. Yeah. And so Keith, if that's your question, that's a very insightful question. But I, what I would say to you is people do this all the time in their personal and business economy. Uh, we see this all the time. People, Keith says uh, yes. I used to, uh, yeah, thanks Keith. I used to, I used to own an auto, auto repair place and a person would come in and they'd say, I don't have money to repair my car, so I'm just going to get a new car. Well, if you don't have money to repair your car and you go get a new car, then now you have an additional payment every month, which Keith, I would argue, you will find that additional money to pay back your loan. Why? Because it's more capital that goes back into your system. So yes, you're going to have to change your habits to do that. Now, if it's an if it's an outside investment, such as you buy real estate or you buy uh, this is uh, uh, I'm going to do a, a, a disclosure now. I'm not making any recommendations right now on investments, but if you do private lending. If you do an oil or gas partnership, if you do a non-traded REIT, you do something that's cash flowing, that cash flow should go back first to paying back your loan, okay? Because then you can rinse and repeat and do it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And eventually then, as Nelson talks about in his book also, you can have passive income from your where you're not paying back the loan or you're just taking the dividends from it. Um, so, Keith? I understand your question, and yes, you have to worry about that. And that is why you may want to start. There's a couple of designs, um, Keith, where you might want to start with a certain design and that's actually lower than what you could put in. And one company that I know of, you can actually put additional future PUA payments. So let's say you can only have, you can't afford forty thousand, but you want to start with thirty thousand. So that you can have additional money to make repayments into um, any loans that you take out. Maybe you don't maximize. And frankly, most insurance companies now will not, will not allow you to maximize your total um, cash flow. 
So you shouldn't worry about that. So meaning uh, that if you had $30,000 a year extra in your financial life, and that was the, all that you had extra, they wouldn't allow you to put the full 30,000. That's what you mean, Bruce, correct? Correct. Um, okay. So uh, hoop, the hoop scoop actually said you can also move money in and out of the policy velocity banking style. Um, I just like to correct that wording. You're not really moving money in and out of the policy because I think when you're thinking in and out, you're actually taking your money out of the policy and putting it back in. What you're doing is you're actually borrowing against your cash value. So your money stays in the policy. That's the whole, that's the mm -hmm. whole reason the concept works. Now, can you take it out for a contract? Yes. You can just take your money back out as a withdrawal. But when you do that, it stops actually earning interest and dividends to, to, to do that. That's why you don't want to do that. You want to actually collateralize it and use it against. Um, velocity banking means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I'm not a huge fan of velocity banking because it's. I'm a huge fan of paying things off, but I think velocity banking can be done in a uh, more efficient way than trying to um, doing some early um, cash value limitations uh, from Ill illiquidity. Um, it's not impossible, but I just think it's more complicated than it needs to be. And, yeah. and the more, complica more complicated you make it, the less likely you're going to stick to it. The hoop scoop, I see you said, right, borrowing, but repaying yeah. is you cash flow. So yes, right. kind of the idea that if you're borrowing against the policy, you have increased cash flow from the investment, repay. I wouldn't call that velocity banking style. I think a couple of things that velocity banking um, brings up, many people mean using um, an IUL and uh, index universal life or universal life or variable life for that. Or even a home equity line of credit that you yes. use and simple interest. There's all kinds of things. But the um, challenge with that not, is there's not- We would not yeah. endorse those. Yeah, there's yeah. not enough guarantees to be able to have guaranteed premium, guaranteed cash value, and guaranteed death benefit, which are three guarantees that you need as a solid ground beneath you in order to use infinite banking in a way that really works to leverage well in your life. So that's one thing. Um, the other idea sometimes, and you might, Hoopscoop might- been have been thinking about this or not, but sometimes people will say, take all the loans that you're currently paying, direct that cash into a policy instead when the cash value builds up, then pay off the loans and use that freed up capital to put in premium. So you're kind of recycling money. And the challenge with doing that is not that it doesn't work at all. I mean, I, I think that it could work. The mm -hmm. problem though, mm -hmm. is it's usually directed at people who are overwhelmed in debt or have a lot of outstanding liabilities right now. And the problem with that is it's kind of like taking negative thinking and a problem that was created by thinking, and I'm not trying to judge anyone who's listening right now, but I'm not judging. I'm not saying that you're a bad person, but often we can have this thinking that causes us to get in a negative position. You can't just put infinite banking on top of that as a band-aid and say, now I'm going to use this new product to uh, correct a problem that was created with negative thinking. You need to switch the thinking first and get into financial control where you're saving first, putting aside a portion of all that you make so that you're paying yourself first and get into a position where you have capital you control. And then from that position, you're then able to think about how to use that, that cash that you're putting 
maybe just in the bank or in the safe or under the mattress or in a coffee can in the freezer, wherever you're putting it. And instead say, well, let me put that to work more efficiently and more effectively. And that's where infinite banking can be a powerful tool. But the first step is to really make sure you're paying yourself first, not just spiraling up debt and then paying it off and paying, winding it up and paying it down. <clears throat> so thank you for being with us today. There is so much still to this. I would, um, I'm, I'm going to wrap this really quickly and Bruce, we can also come back to any parts of this, but then Nelson goes on all of page 70. He really just kind of goes back to page 54 and 59, which are two examples and illustrations where he showed exactly what was happening when you pay an additional premium into your life insurance policy. And the main point is that when you pay additional premium in, your cash value grows more. I mean, really, that's kind of what it boils down to. There's a lot of nuance to what he said and a lot of technical details, but really the point is that when you put more money in, you have more growth. And all of this comes back to this idea that rate of return is not a bad question. It's just, unfortunately, the wrong question for addressing whole life insurance. A, whole life insurance is not an investment. It does not have the risk of loss like an investment does. B, it's not that one skinny little component of your financial life over here in the side wings where you're putting money that you don't really need to live on today and you're hoping that it's going to do something for you in the future. That's not what insurance is about. Life insurance used as an infinite banking product that's specially designed is all pervasive in your financial life. It allows you to reclaim the banking function, store capital at the best rate of return that we've possibly that we've seen anywhere on liquid capital that you can access and use so that you can tap into that, you can get it, you can access that, you can make quick financial decisions because you have access to capital. And because you have all of that, you're now able to use this and asset where money's growing inside the life insurance policy and you can put it to work in other investments. And so you're being able to do more in your financial life because you're zooming out from that skinny little investing corner over here and looking at your entire financial economy and how money is flowing through the whole system and taking control of that. So um, that is really where rate of return is the wrong lens and you really outperform that rate of return question and get way ahead, like exponentially ahead of where everyone who's asking the rate of return question, you get exponentially ahead by understanding the whole system, reclaiming that banking function, looking long-term and using the and lens of infinite banking to do financing in your life. So thank you for being with us today. I do see the question here, TC Chowd Hurry. I don't know if I'm saying your name correctly. Yes. Um, you said, is this something you can help us set up? So Bruce, I think you were making a comment here and yes, I'm yep. going to share that right now. I <laughs> yeah, Rachel, two share. really cool things to share, but one of them, uh, I don't have. Uh, hey, Rachel, before you share, let me, let me just wrap up my portion today. You go ahead. I'm going to grab First of all, I would like to thank everybody for this year of listening and, um, supporting Rachel and I and our message that we believe is pure Nelson Nash messages. Uh, why? Because Nelson was a was a uh, personal mentor of mine. Uh, I, I considered him a friend also, and um, so much so that I part, I'm pouring my heart and soul into the Nelson Nash Institute as a member of the advisory council. And uh, we are looking at a vision going forward where 
this is going to be continue to get more and more mainstream like it was when I was growing up in the six in the uh, prior to the, to the 70s and the 60s where people actually utilize whole life all the time. And then we got away from this and now we're coming back full circle. We've had more listeners today, more engagement than we've had in any of our podcasts. We really appreciate each and every one of you. We know it's a lot out of your day to, to come in and, and uh, listen to us and we really, really appreciate it. So now Rachel's going to share a few things with you and, and then we're going to say uh, happy holidays and um, for the rest of the, the season and the rest of the year. So yes, hopefully I don't forget anything. I've got a lot of cool stuff, so please don't leave yet. And thank you for being with us today. If you're liking what you're hearing first, please make sure that you give a thumbs up on whatever platform you're listening. If you're on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe to our channel to get more content like this. Again, we're going through a series on becoming your own banker, but we have unpacked this for 22 episodes and we're still not done yet. So there's a lot more great stuff to come and a lot of great stuff that we've talked about over the past Bruce, I think almost five years now. Maybe it has been five. It's been a long time. So it's either uh, four six five. years. What? Oh my goodness. <laughs> we started in 2017. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, see, I'm, I'm losing track of time. So when, um, so that's one thing. Like, comment, share this with somebody that you are close to, that you care about. Because if you are concerned about your financial life and making great decisions, chances are you have a spouse who's also making decisions with you or a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter who is making decisions that you really care about their financial future as well, not just your own. So share this episode. If you are on any platform, go ahead and um, leave us a review as well. So we just love to hear from you. Thank you for your questions. Hoop Scoops had already subscribed. That's awesome. Um, now, if you want to actually jump into a conversation, this platform where we're talking, whether you're watching us or listening, because we have this all on the the podcast channels afterwards. So this is Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play and all those places. Whether you're listening or watching, you can engage a little bit with us as we're talking to the masses. But when you have a specific question, you can always do two things. You can set that in your comments or send that over in the comments, or you can email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. That's going to allow us to answer more broadly another general, generic I don't want to say generic, that, that word is um, a negative word. We can answer broadly in a public context. When you're ready to cross that bridge from saying, I have a general question about how this works to now, how do I apply it in my own life? Where here's my financial situation. Here's the kids that I have. Here's the financial goals that I have. Here's my timeline. Here's what my assets are. Here's my Here's how old I am. Here's the financial decisions I've made in the past. Here's the ones that I'm looking to improve. When you're asking those questions, it's ready for a personal conversation because every single person is going to have a different answer for exactly what works for them. There's not the right exact one size fits all product with the one size fits all premium that you're going to pay. It's individually tailored to your specific situation, your outcomes, your goals. And we take all of that into consideration in a very personal conversation to make sure that all of that's being considered and that you are getting the absolute best product that's going to serve you going forward. And so, yes, you can book a call with our advisors. Go to themoneyadvantage.com and there's a link on that homepage. We've redone it recently, um, so I'm not remembering. There's like six different ways you can get to our calendar. You can go straight to the calendar. It's actually going to ask you why you want to book because we're doing some additional work, which is helping you build out your legacy and really think about the legacy that you're leaving. So you might be coming for a financial reason 
and a financial conversation, or you might be wanting to do work on building out your legacy with with your family, and we can help you with both of those conversations. So go to our calendar at themoneyadvantage.com. You can get on our calendar and really explore that conversation of saying, how do I start infinite banking? How do I start optimizing my financial life? How do I start thinking differently? And yes, we can help you put in place the exact infinite banking and family banking system that is going to be best for you. Now, I hope that I've answered that question well. I want to share one more thing. So this book I have written and it is online. It's on Amazon. It's an actual book. So this is the hardcover version called Seven Generations Legacy. The reason I want to share this with you is that a couple of weeks ago, two weeks, three weeks, I can't remember. I did an episode to tell you all about the book. And I just wanted to thank you. If you have purchased the book, you've maybe gone out to Amazon and you've got it. I'm really, really grateful. We not only hit um, number one new release in multiple categories with the book, we also hit number one bestseller in multiple categories. And we were in the very top, I think five or six in like seven categories of bestseller as well. And that is just a huge blessing to me and to us and to our team, because we realize that thinking about your financial life is much bigger than just your money. It's really about thinking about how you are creating family wealth and how you're guiding your children and how you're passing on wealth and a legacy of values and how you're not just giving them financial resources, but you're going to help them to have the stewardship to continue on that legacy for generations to come so that it can continue blessing them. That's what the book is all about. If you have already purchased the book on Amazon, I just want to say thank you for being a huge part of that big success. And if you have not yet, you're welcome to go get the book. It's on Amazon. Go to um, just search Seven Generations Legacy. You should be able to find that. So please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.